Chapter Fifteen of From the Earth to the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. From the Earth to the Moon by Jules Verne. Chapter Fifteen The Fete of the Casting. During the eight months which were employed in the work of excavation, the preparatory works of the casting had been carried on simultaneously with extreme rapidity. A stranger arriving at Stones Hill would have been surprised at the spectacle offered to his view. At six hundred yards from the well, and circularly arranged around it as a central point, rose twelve hundred reverberating ovens, each six feet in diameter, and separated from each other by an interval of three feet. The circumference occupied by these twelve hundred ovens presented a length of two miles. Being all constructed on the same plan, each with its high quadrangular chimney, they produced a most singular effect. It will be remembered that on the third meeting the committee had decided to use cast iron for the Columbiad, and in particular the white description. This metal, in fact, is the most tenacious, the most ductile, and the most malleable, and consequently suitable for all moulding operations, and when smelted with pit-coal, is of superior quality for all engineering works requiring great resisting power, such as cannon, steam-boilers, hydraulic presses, and the like. Cast iron, however, if subjected to only one single fusion, is rarely sufficiently homogeneous and it requires a second fusion completely to refine it by dispossessing it of its last earthly deposits. So before being forwarded to Tampa Town, the iron ore, molten in the great furnaces of Cold Spring, and brought into contact with coal and silicium heated to a high temperature, was carburized and transformed into cast iron. After this first operation, the metal was sent on to Stones Hill. They had, however, to deal with 136 million pounds of iron, a quantity far too costly to send by railway. The cost of transport would have been double that of material. It appeared preferable to freight vessels at New York and to load them with the iron in bars. This, however, required not less than 68 vessels of 1,000 tons, a veritable fleet, which, quitting New York on the 3rd of May, on the tenth of the same month ascended the bay of Espirito Santo, and discharged their cargoes, without dues, in the port at Tampa Town. Thence the iron was transported by rail to Stones Hill, and about the middle of May this enormous mass of metal was delivered at its destination. It will be easily understood that twelve hundred furnaces were not too many to melt simultaneously these sixty thousand tons of iron. Each of these furnaces contained nearly 140,000 pounds weight of metal. They were all built after the model of those which served for the casting of the Rodman gun. They were trapezoidal in shape, with a high elliptical arch. These furnaces, constructed of fireproof brick, were especially adapted for burning pit coal, with a flat bottom upon which the iron bars were laid. This bottom, inclined at an angle of 25 degrees, allowed the metal to flow into the receiving troughs, and the twelve hundred converging trenches carried the molten metal 
down to the central well. The day following that on which the works of the masonry and boring had been completed, Barbicane set to work upon the central mould. His object now was to raise within the centre of the well, and with a coincident axis, a cylinder nine hundred feet high and nine feet in diameter, which should exactly fill up the space reserved for the bore of the Columbiad. This cylinder was composed of a mixture of clay and sand, with the addition of a little hay and straw. The space left between the mould and the masonry was intended to be filled up by the molten metal, which would thus form the walls six feet in thickness. This cylinder, in order to maintain its equilibrium, had to be bound by iron bands, and firmly fixed at certain intervals by cross-clamps fastened into the stone lining. After the castings, these would be buried in the block of metal, leaving no external projection. This operation was completed on the 8th of July, and the run of the metal was fixed for the following day. "'The fed of the casting will be a grand ceremony,' said J. T. Maston to his friend Barbicane. "'Undoubtedly,' said Barbicane, "'but it will not be a public fete. "'What, will you not open the gates of the enclosure to all comers?' "'I must be very careful, Maston. "'The casting of the Columbiad is an extremely delicate, "'not to say a dangerous operation, "'and I should prefer its being done privately. "'At the discharge of the projectile, a fete, if you like. "'Till then, no.' "'The President was right.' The operation involved unforeseen dangers, which a great influx of spectators would have hindered him from averting. It was necessary to preserve complete freedom of movement. No one was admitted within the enclosure except the delegation of members of the gun club who had made the voyage to Tampa Town. Among these was the brisk Billsby, Tom Hunter, Colonel Blomsbury, Major Elphinstone, General Morgan, and the rest of the lot to whom the casting of the Columbiad was a matter of personal interest. J. T. Maston became their cicerone. He omitted no point of detail. He conducted them throughout the magazines, workshops, through the midst of the engines, and compelled them to visit the whole twelve hundred furnaces one after the other. At the end of the twelve hundredth visit they were pretty well knocked up. The casting was to take place at twelve o'clock precisely. The previous evening each furnace had been charged with 114,000 pounds weight of metal in bars disposed crossways to each other, so as to allow the hot air to circulate freely between them. At daybreak the twelve hundred chimneys vomited their torrents of flame into the air, and the ground was agitated with dull tremblings, as many pounds of metal as there were to cast, so many pounds of coal were there to burn. Thus there were sixty-eight thousand tons of coal which projected in the face of the sun a thick curtain of smoke. The heat soon became insupportable within the circle of furnaces, the rumbling of which resembled the rolling of thunder. The powerful ventilators added their continuous blasts, and saturated with oxygen the glowing plates. The operation, to be successful, required to be conducted with great rapidity. On a signal given by a cannon shot, each furnace was to give vent to the molten iron and completely to empty itself. These arrangements made, foremen and workmen waited the preconcerted moment 
with an impatience mingled with a certain amount of emotion. Not a soul remained within the enclosure. Each superintendent took his post by the aperture of the run. Barbicane and his colleagues, perched on a neighboring eminence, assisted at the operation. In front of them was a piece of artillery ready to give fire on signal from the engineer. Some minutes before midday the first driblets of metal began to flow. The reservoirs filled little by little, and by the time that the whole melting was completely accomplished, it was kept in abeyance for a few minutes in order to facilitate the separation of foreign substances. Twelve o'clock struck. A gunshot suddenly peeled forth and shot its flame into the air. Twelve hundred melting troughs were simultaneously opened, and twelve hundred fiery serpents crept towards the central well, unrolling their incandescent curves. There, down they plunged with a terrific noise into a depth of nine hundred feet. It was an exciting and a magnificent spectacle. The ground trembled, while these molten waves, launching into the sky their wreaths of smoke, evaporated the moisture of the mould and hurled it upwards through the vent holes of the stone lining in the form of dense vapour clouds. These artificial clouds unrolled their thick spirals to a height of a thousand yards into the air. A savage, wandering somewhere beyond the limits of the horizon, might have believed that some new crater was forming in the bosom of Florida, although there was neither any eruption, nor typhoon, nor storm, nor struggle of the elements, nor any of those terrible phenomena which nature is capable of producing. No. It was man alone who had produced these reddish vapours, these gigantic flames worthy of a volcano itself, these tremendous vibrations resembling the shock of an earthquake, these reverberations rivalling those of hurricanes and storms, and it was his hand which precipitated into an abyss, dug by himself, a whole Niagara of molten metal. End of chapter.